Okay, Sander. Well, welcome, folks. It's a great psalm. This one's my favourite psalm. It's the one I've learned off by heart, but it's got some tricky bits in it. So stick with us tonight. We'll see how we go with it. I'm going to pray. Uh, loving Father, thank you so much for giving us your word. And we thank you for the things you've told us in this fantastic psalm. And I pray that tonight you will help us to take it to heart. Amen. Well, as you know, we just had a federal election, didn't we, just a short while ago. And seriously, who would ever be a politician? I mean, seriously, whatever you do, you know that roughly half the population are going to be against you. You just know that. Whatever decision you make, half the population, at least in Australia, are going to think you're mad. Your opponents, they're not going to cut you any slack. They're going to look for every opportunity to cut you down and prove that you're an idiot. They will always assume the worst about you. It'd be awful being a politician, wouldn't it? People will love you or hate you just because of your label. It's true, isn't it? Have you noticed that? They will love you or hate you just because of what party you're in or represent. And it doesn't matter what your motivations are or how honest you are. You're going to get bagged out by half the population. But when you think about it, I was thinking about it for politicians. When you think about it, though, that's the case in life in general, isn't it? Some time ago, someone left our church because of me, because I had apparently ignored them at the shopping centre. I was shocked. Um, Because I never intentionally ignore anybody. And if they knew me, they'd have known that. Made me realise that nobody really knows who we are, do they? Nobody really understands you. Nobody knows what really motivates you as an individual, what your dreams are, what you're like. As somebody once said, every person is an island. It's true, isn't it? Today we take a look at Psalm 139 and David tells us that there is one who knows us. Thanks, Keats. Um, What he said was good. I should just sit down, but I'm not going to because I've prepared this, so you're going to have to hear it anyway. But what he said was great, wasn't it? That God knows us. That's what this psalm is about. So he starts off, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. Now notice, just at the very beginning, he calls God Lord. It's in capital letters. And uh, you will probably know that that stands for God's name, Yahweh. The Bible writers thought God was so holy you could not use his name, so they stuck a bunch of letters together um, to depict God's name. And what our Bible translators have done is whenever those letters turn up, they translate it L-O-R-D in capital letters in the Old Testament. So wherever you see that, it's a reference to Yahweh, which is to the best of our ability, how you pronounce God's real name. And so David is not just addressing any God. Some years ago, Mark Latham, you know him? He was mayor of Liverpool, where I lived. And uh, it had been the practice in council meetings to open the council meetings with prayer. And because Liverpool was so multicultural, and because Mark Latham was a an atheist, I no, no, maybe I'm assuming too much, but Mark wrote a prayer for the clergy to pray at the beginning of the council prayers, and it was addressed to the God of our understanding. 
to try and include everybody, you see. That is not the God of the Bible. That's not Yahweh. You see, he's not some vague super being, this God that David's addressing here in this psalm. He is the God who chose one nation out of a whole bunch of nations to be his people. He's the God who said, through you, the whole world is going to be blessed. He chose Moses. And through Moses, he rescued those people from slavery in Egypt and led them to the promised land. And that God promised King David, who wrote this psalm, that one of his descendants would reign forever. And we know that's the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the God that David addresses. Yahweh. And that is why lots of Christians will not attend ecumenical services. Because... In an ecumenical service, no one's quite sure what God you're praying to. Yahweh, he says, Lord, you have searched me and you know me. He says, you know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You know all the details of my life, God. You keep watch. God keeps watch over his people. Uh, Remember Stephen's... Uh, sermon last week, God's our bodyguard. I thought that was a really great picture. He says, you know when I go out and when I come home, when I get up and when I go to bed, God, you know every detail of my life. You know me so well that you even know what I'm going to say before I say it. Isn't that a magnificent psalm? See, God is not watching David from a distance. God is up close and personal. Jesus said much the same thing when you get to the New Testament. He said to his disciples that God even knew the number of hairs on their heads. Isn't that extraordinary? Got to keep a running count with me. God is intimately involved in the lives of his people. That's what this psalm says. That is just fantastic stuff. And David says to God, you hem me in behind and before. God, you've got my back. That's what it is. You go before me and you've got my back. You've laid your hand upon me, he says. God's got his hand on David's shoulder. So just a beautiful picture, isn't it, of this magnificent God who's not some super being remote off in heaven and not really interested in the world but a God who is intimately interested in every detail of David's life. It's a great image. As David navigates through life, and as he leads the nation, you will be aware if you've read his story, he had some terrible times. He can depend on the fact that he is God's chosen king. That God leads the way and God has his back. And what happens is, David recounts all this, and then it's just too much for him. He just breaks out into praise. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. I can't can't grab a hold of that, that this God, this mighty ruler of the universe, takes that intimate interest in me. It's just too much for my brain to keep hold of. God has got David's life in his hands. And then David goes on to one of, I think, one of the most wonderful passages in the whole of the Scriptures. And it was read really well for us by Xander. Thank you. 
where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. There is nowhere, he says, nowhere I can be, God, where you aren't present. If I go to the lowest point possible, if I head to the top of Everest, you're there. You know, 11 people have died on Mount Everest this year. In this disturbing picture, you're going to see, uh, people are almost walking over a dead body. And this is what the filmmaker who took that photograph, a guy called Elias Akeley, said. He said, The early morning light had revealed the gateway to the summit of Everest, and in parallel a human being who had lost his life. Here we all were, chasing a dream, and beneath our very feet there was a lifeless soul. That person died alone on the peak of the world, as everyone else went on about pursuing their dreams and ignoring him. But that is not the case for those who belong to God. If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. David says, God, you are everywhere. I cannot escape you. He says, even when I'm in the darkest place imaginable, when I'm in the pit, the night will shine like the day. Now, how is all that relevant to us? How can we be sure that God has our back, like David was sure he had his back? How can we know that God is always with us, like David is sure he's always with him? Because we're not David, are we? We're not God's promised king, appointed king of Israel, like David was. Can we sort of get the sort of confidence that David has? Well, the son of God, the son of that God, of Yahweh, the God that David addresses, came and died so that God could adopt us. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Jesus said that we are joined to him like the branches of the grapevine are joined to the trunk of the grapevine, if we're his people. And God never deserted Jesus. Even when he's on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? He's quoting Psalm 22. It's not that God has abandoned him. Friends, we can be joined to Jesus by our faith in him. And then all these promises are ours. David goes on. He says that God formed him in his mother's womb. For you created my inmost being, he says. You knit me together in my mother's womb. You know what that says, folks? It says that you are not an accident. That's what Keith said, wasn't it? God put you together. Sure, he used DNA and he used your parents' wills. 
but he controlled the process. Your eyes saw my unformed body, says David. From the moment of conception, the Bible tells us that we are a child valued by God. In fact, before the moment of conception. God had you in mind before the creation of the world. If you don't believe me, have a look at this next um, passage. Praise be the God and Father, says Paul in Ephesians, of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's not the verse I'm looking for. I'm looking for the one that says um, that, that God chose you in Christ before the creation of the world. God is intimately... Folks, we've got to think about what this means in terms of the whole abortion debate. If, if God has planned for your existence before the creation of the world, if he is moulding you together in your mother's womb, I know that abortion can be a very complicated and difficult issue, especially where the mother's well-being is involved or where there's been a rape. I understand that. But we should not accept abortion unless under the most extreme consequences because that fetus has been formed by God, was in God's mind before the creation of the world. It does bother me that our culture gets more upset about recycling than we do about unborn children who are being put to death, sometimes merely for convenience. Read this psalm and see what it says to you. But stepping back from that little, hear this, your birth was no accident. Might have been a, might have been a surprise to your parents, <laughs> but it was no accident. <laughs> it was planned by God. You are his handiwork. He wove you together. That's the imagery, isn't it? It's just marvellous. And then again, David does this thing where he just breaks out in the praise of God because it's just too much for him to handle. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. He can't seem to help himself. All this stuff that he's recounting about God just wells up inside him and says, God, this is just fantastic. My brain can't comprehend it, but I praise you because I, because I look at my body and I look at what you've made and I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You may not be the person you wish you were. You may not have the skills and abilities you wish you had. You may not even have the body shape that you really desire. And you may look at your life with regret or disappointment if you think about your lack of accomplishment. But if you are joined to the Lord Jesus Christ, all God sees is his righteousness. And he sees a human being that he planned before the creation of the world. That's what he sees in you. So you might be down on yourself, but God certainly is not. You get to bask in the glory of all that the Lord Jesus has done for you. And God made you like you are for a reason. David goes on, All the days ordained for us were written in your book before one of them came to be. Think about it. Isn't that something? Until you reach the point where God has determined he's calling you home, 
You are indestructible. All the days ordained for you and I were written in God's book before one of them came to be. Extraordinary, isn't it? We could leave our lives in the hands of this mighty God, this Yahweh. Reminds me of Jesus' words to his disciples. I will be with you always to the end of the age. Remember that? I will never leave you or forsake you, says Jesus. And once again, David breaks out into praise. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand, and when I awake, I'm still with you. God, he's not just talking about sort of the number of different thoughts God might have in a minute or a day, but he's saying, God, just the whole of everything about you is just so inconceivably big. When David meditates on his God and God's character and his holiness and his love and his forgiveness, he's just totally overwhelmed. Even in David's sleep, God is present watching over him. Isn't that just marvellous? What a mighty God we have. And if you don't know that God personally, you ought to do something about that. What a mighty God. What an incredible blessing God offers us if we will only give our lives to him. Life has meaning and purpose. We are not an accident. And so we're going to sing some praises to this great God right now. I invite the music team back up. Part one of the talk. Part two is coming. Okay, second half. And um, the reason I'm doing this second half is because I don't want to be accused of avoiding the difficult passages. Because we now come to one of the really very difficult passages and confronting passages in the whole Bible, I think. Verse 19 and following in Psalm 139. Look at it with me. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Not very Christian, is it? Aren't we supposed to love everyone? Doesn't God love everyone? I think this is one part of the psalm and probably one part of all the psalms that we kind of wish wasn't there. So I tread lightly as we have a look at it. I want you to remember the context though of this psalm first. David has been caught up with the wonder and the grace and the loving care of his God. And in the light of the character of this wonderful loving God... David cannot understand how there are people who ignore him or worse, mock him and mock his people. And so David is offended for his God. I was reading a book just this week where a 13-year-old girl was bullied so badly at school and over social media that she attempted suicide. And don't you just hate those trolls? Those bullies, it is awful. It's a horrible, horrible thing. It is right 
to hate that sort of behaviour, is it not? Anyway, her mother found out who the ringleader of the bullying circle was and went round to her home to have it out with her. And as she's standing outside the front door of her house, she hears the girl's drunken father screaming at her and abusing her. She hated that girl and all that she stood for. But her compassion got the better of her and she wanted to reach out and help her. The Bible says that God is angry with mankind and humankind because of our sin. And yet he loves us and offers to rescue us at the same time. Both of those things are there in the scriptures. So here in this psalm, David is expressing his anger at those who oppose God or simply ignore him. He hates what they stand for. And yet, I assume he can still love his enemies, as God does. The other thing is that the Bible seems to describe, but now I'm going to stretch your minds here. Please stay with me to the end. You might not like what I'm going to say now, but I want you to assess it. The other thing is that the Bible seems to describe two different sorts of love that God has. God does not love everybody the same. Just go back to Psalm 103 that we looked at two weeks ago. It says in verse 11, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. And verse 13 in the same psalm, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. There is a special love for want of a better word or a better phrase, that God has for those who are his people, who fear or love him and or love him. In the New Testament, those who honour and respect God and put their lives in Jesus' hands are collectively called Jesus' bride. Think about the implications of that. There is a special relationship of love God has for those who come to him through Jesus. He loves all people, but there is a special love that he has for those who fear him, who honour him, who love him, who respect him. And you can see that distinction in the famous John 3.16. For God so loved the world, there you go, he loves the whole world, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. See, John tells us that God loves the broken world so much that he sent Jesus. That is how God shows his love par excellence. Not by ignoring the way we treat him or the way we treat each other, Not by ignoring that and saying, oh, well, I love you, let's just forget all about it. No, no, he shows his love by sending Jesus to die in our place to rescue us from judgment if we'll put our faith in Jesus. But those who reject his love in Jesus, look at it, they stand condemned. Here's our problem, I think anyway. We think of anger as rage 
And we can't believe that a loving God will be full of rage at anybody. That is not our picture of God and his love. But God's anger and hatred towards sin is not rage. It's not some uncontrollable outburst of venom. It's his settled and deliberate antagonism and opposition towards all forms of sin. He hates evil. And so he should if he's a good God. He hates it when people are bullied. He hates it when we abuse each other and use each other. He hates evil and so should we. In that respect, God is like a good judge or a good police officer. He is completely opposed to wrongdoing. Problem is that we all fall into that basket, don't we? None of us is perfect. We all fail to live as God wants. And that is why he sent Jesus. So getting back to the psalm, David in these verses, it seems to me, is so intimately aligned with God and God's worldview that God's enemies are his enemies. We are called to love our enemies and to do good to those who hate us. But without the Lord Jesus Christ, they are still God's enemies unless they turn to Jesus in repentance and faith. We can love people because we, we're in the same boat with our Jesus. We can love our enemies. We can love God's enemies while wanting them to change because we were like that, enemies of God. David wants God's enemies gone. And the best way, of course... To stop people being God's enemies is to help them become his friends, is it not? To introduce them to Jesus. That is why here at Menai Anglican, we are on about introducing Jesus and seeing lives changed. That is why we invite people to come to church, so that they might get to know Jesus. That is why everyone is welcome here. David says, do I not hate those who hate you, Yahweh, O Lord? Of course he should. Hate what they stand for. Hate what they do that is wrong. Hate what is wrong in his own self. But love them too. Because without Jesus dying to take our punishment, we are all in the same boat together. We need the forgiveness that Jesus brings See, to some people, the idea that God could be angry at anyone is a horrible idea. If he loves, then he must eventually overlook sin and evil, because that's what love does. No, his love is seen in sending his son to die and rescue us from being his enemies. God does love his enemies. But his love is seen in the sacrifice of Jesus. Can you see what a monumental love that is? That's a much bigger, tougher love than the love that just says, don't worry, you'll all eventually make it to heaven. I'll just ignore your sin. I'll overlook it. This is a monumental love that says, I will, take, I will make the ultimate sacrifice because of my love for you. It's a costly, costly love. John says, this is love, 
Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. That's where you see the love of God. God's love does not overlook our sin. God's love sent his son, Jesus, to take the punishment for our sin. And by the way, um, Jesus fully agreed with all this. It's not as though God is ordering Jesus to do what he didn't want to do. He sent Jesus to take the punishment for our sin so that we can be forgiven. That is the love of God. What a great love. Finally, David comes back to where he started. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So David has told us how God knows him intimately and yet he says, God, please search me. He's asking God to point out his sin, his failings, because he wants to honour his God. He wants to be able to say sorry for his sin and repent and honour his God. See, he belongs to God and now he wants to live a life worthy of that honour. May that be the case for all of us. Let's pray. Our loving Father, thank you so much for your amazing, incredible love seen in our Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that you will empower us to be a people who spread this good news that people can come to you for forgiveness. Father, we, we fear for those who will die unforgiven. But Father, we pray that we will be a church that reaches out with the good news, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.